trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Welcome back to Trawling for 10 Baggers. Uh, it's been a very busy period in the market for us, um, and we thank you for your support. Um, look, it's been over 20 episodes, and, and the market's really been you know, quite up and down. So given that we did our first recording with Warwick Grigger, uh, we're delighted to have him back on the show. Um, Warwick's come back just to talk about you know, the observations of the ASX in the last sort of 18 months. So Warwick, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Do you want to just start with just your general observations on the market over the last year or so? Yeah, the last year has been quite an extraordinary year, one of the, the most extraordinary in my 50-year uh, history. We, we came out of the initial lockdown and the virus. Um, suddenly there was enormous appetite for any stock especially the speculative stocks, people have said, well, that's because everyone was uh, playing the market at home, taking the money the government was giving them. They had nothing better to do than to play the market. That may or may not have be the, the biggest factor, but it was an important factor. The gold price was very strong up until about August. Money started coming out of gold stocks from August onwards, and we actually had a an almost a six-month bear market on gold stocks, which would have taken most people by surprise. But the money that was made was rolled into a lot of other commodities, uh, a lot of other sectors, especially the alternative energy sector, and we've had enormous valuations for some of those companies. But since, uh, let's say, January, February, basically the markets in the smaller end has have been... Um, taking a backward step. They've been drifting without collapsing. The big stocks, the all ordinaries and, and iron ore producers in particular, those companies have continued to do very well, but the smaller end of the market generally has been drifting to lower levels and uh, it's almost back to a normal market that you'd expect at this time of year. We saw that there was a fair bit of tax selling in June. Um, you know, the, the maxim selling may go away. The, the market is starting to behave more like you would expect it to now that we've gotten through that extraordinary period, especially in the second half of 2020. Did you think that sell in May, that sort of tax stock selling, was any different to previous years in your observation work? Um, it was, it came later. Normally, it's very hard to raise money uh, as you get through May and into June because people just don't want to play. This time, 
people were playing. There are a lot of people still raising capital, which is unusual, and more unusual is the market was taking it. So that was unusual in that respect. But as you got into June, you did start to see a bit more of that tax loss selling, um, but not as long a period. So Warwick, going back to what you were talking about there, um, returning to normal market conditions, I, I think without sort of getting focusing on too much about the now, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to ignore the the mad deluge of IPOs uh, that we've seen this week and and, and in recent months. Uh, do you have any thoughts coming back to what you just said about the start about the money that's being sort of moved from gold into other other plays? Yeah, well, um, IPOs have a lagged effect. When you've got a strong market, it takes a while. Uh, You get months where you have no IPOs because there's just no enthusiasm, there's a lot of work involved and people just aren't interested. What we have seen in the last six months in particular is the enthusiasm that was apparent a year ago it eventually came through the paperwork, the compliance, the ASX, and you had a lot of those IPOs this year. The um, If you look at, you know, it was a tsunami of, uh, of IPOs that we've seen where normally you get waves. This was something much bigger. And if you have a look at how they've performed, some have performed well um, and some haven't as you'd expect, but it, it's not a guarantee of success with an IPO. On balance, I'd probably say, reviewing the, the price performances this morning, that more have gone down from the issue price than have gone up. So um, it hasn't been a guarantee to make money, and I think that's a trap for a lot of people who haven't played IPOs before. They There's a lack of discovery, in price discovery. You don't know what the fair price is. You don't want you don't know what the market's going to pay. You have something put together by the company and the brokers and to their best guesses, they think they can they can succeed and it's priced well for their clients. But you never really know until the broad public get a chance to, to assess it when it's openly trading. So that's a big risk with um, lack of price discovery ahead of trading. The other thing is, The information that they give you in a prospectus, there's a lot of information, and most of it's not relevant because it's not the real reason why you're buying those shares. There's a a lot of constraint on what companies can say. Many times it's a collection of properties that look good when you write them up, but they might not even be the real projects. Um, It's all an exercise in trying to legitimise it so you can get it through the stock exchange. And you need to have a bit more insight. Just getting all that information doesn't help you make a good decision. So, uh, you know, that this, it, they, it doesn't always make sense. Personally, I don't like taking IPOs. I'm a student of the market and the market dynamics. With an IPO, you don't have any dynamics to examine or to, or, or to appreciate. So it's, it's really a bit of a punt. The other thing is a lot of people come into IPOs because they think there are, there's a chance for a quick stag. You pay 20 cents a share and you should be able to sell it out for 25 or 30, and they're inclined to do that. Um, but the more that want to stag, 
the less successful it's going to be because it basically puts a ceiling on the price and you then have to go through a period of digestion. It might trade below the issue price for a while. Um, and people who are disillusioned because they thought they could do a quick stag, well, they sell and move on and take a short loss. One thing to be careful of with IPOs is, is companies that have um, options attached because a common strategy is for the people who take the shares, they sell the shares and keep the options. And they don't mind dropping one or two cents on the on the headstock if they've got options. But, you know, the other thing to consider is do they really want to take the IPO in the first place anyway or is it something the broker says, oh, you should have some of these and a lot of people might be indifferent, but they take it to keep the relationship going. So, um, you know, you need a spread of shareholders. You need to raise that money to get over the line because, if you're raising five million, but you only get together four and a half million, it's a lot of work to get to have gotten to that point and then fail by five hundred thousand dollars. So there's there's a few di- dynamics. When you start on a, an IPO, you're not going to be able to start raising the money for another six months at least, depending how long it takes to get through the exchange. So that's another risk factor that you've got to consider. Um, you know the the timing. Um, so, you know, you, you expect to see these companies come through when you get a very strong market, but you've got to ask yourself, can I get better value on a stock that's got similar projects already listed? Um, and the reason why we've got so many IPOs now is because our general market has been very expensive and people are looking for cheaper alternatives. So, um, yeah, it's ripe for doing IPOs now. That's quite intriguing, Warwick, and I believe you had some statistics that you mentioned recently regarding IPOs. Oh, I've gone and done a bit of a search just to see how companies have gone in the last six months with their IPOs, and there's been an enormous number of them. Not all mining stocks. There's a lot of... um, industrial stocks, and it's interesting that a lot of those industrial stocks have actually done a lot worse than the mining stocks. Um, So, you know, you're not protecting yourself from risk because you're deciding not to play speculative mining stocks. There's plenty of uh, uh, problems and issues with industrials, and that comes down to um, poorly poor advice and pricing with the advisors or brokers because to get an industrial listing, uh, you're supposed to be uh, a stronger, better company with better track records. But, you know, again, that's your, your pricing issue. It's not an exact science. It's interesting. Certainly there seemed to be a sort of proliferation of placements and rights issue and all sorts of capital raises in 2020 and then 2021 just had this enormous... IPO um, location, as you said. So does this sort of reflect a normal market cycle that you've observed in previous periods, Warwick, in terms of that sort of bull market it, IPOs listing? Generically, it does fit the model that when you have a strong market uh, where there's been a period of, say, a year or 18 months where it's been hard to raise capital, a stronger market, when it turns around and money starts flowing into it, you've got a period where a lot of companies that are running down on cash uh, 
they need to raise money. And so that can put a stop to the run in a lot of companies when there's placements and things like that. If there's enough enthusiasm and the market can push through that and, and companies do raise the money and investors still want more, that's when you'll start to get the IPO stage come through, which we're experiencing now. But the IPO stage tends to signal that you're getting towards the top of the market. So um, the, the cycle this time around, same sort of uh, path, but it's more extreme on um, the, the height of the cycle, the waves of the cycle this time. That's quite interesting, Warwick. Um, I want to come back to something you said just before about the reading of prospectus because often I've heard, you know, people in, in parties saying that because of the, the sheer volume of IPOs and prospectuses that normal investors don't have the time, well, or aren't going through prospectuses in detail. Do you commonly uh, read independent geologist reports or anything that you look for in the prospectus uh, in detail that you could share to arm uh, punters? Yeah, there, there's a number of uh, perspectives. One is the, the technical geological. Another is the capital structure. Um, and then the management. Um, on, the, on the technical geological reports, well, I like to look at where the properties are generally to see if it's in the right environment. The, the geological reports can be useful depending on who writes them and whether it's selective disclosure where they just pick on a few things that look interesting. Quite often they're properties I've already seen before and I may have reservations, but I would need to actually speak to the geologist to see what their perspectives are to see if they're any different. What you've got in a prospectus is background information uh, that the exchange is... Um, um, looked at and vetted, and it's all quite sterile. It, it's, it's it's very rarely inspirational. So yeah, it's important, but not the only thing. the The capital structure is important. What's the split? Uh, how much are the promoters getting? How much are the vendors getting? What escrow periods are there? How many people got set at seed capital raisings so that they could afford to sell stock lower than the issue price and still make a profit. That's important. You've got to be careful of um, the sausage factory style, which Perth tends to specialise in, where you get three properties that are, you know, close to Mekathara or Kalgoorlie or some other name so they can put a, a neurology um, aspect to them. Um that, that the brokers and their mates will have gotten set at seed capital prices. Is it $0.05? Cents? Is it $0.10? Cents? If a, t- a $0.10 cents seed raising is not a bad thing uh, if it's an IPO that's going on at 20 because a lot of these seed capital things, they don't always make it to the IPO stage, so they deserve some risk. But where you've got people getting set at $0.01 cent or 0.1 or $0.05, cents, you've got to decide whether they're gilding the lily there or whether it is a, a fair risk, you need to look to see if there's one party that is going to have a stranglehold on management and be dictatorial, or whether 
It's going to be managed for all shareholders equally. That's an issue. And then that takes us on to the third important aspect, which is management. Um, is, is it the sort of people you want to back? Have they done this before? Is it just another exercise to take advantage of this cycle? Or are they genuine new players to the corporate scene having had good, uh, successful technical careers up to that point? So all those things um, come to light. So, um, But the overall market and how the previous IPOs in the last two or three weeks have gone are extremely important to tell you what the appetite is like for a new issue like this today. That's some really good points, Warwick. Um, just on the escrow, maybe to explain to the listeners, could you just give a bit of a brief summary of what that, what that means when you talk about the escrow chairs? Well, if uh, people are getting cheaper than the Johnny Public, the 20 cent or the 25 cent price, the exchange will look at what price they got in at and see if those people are getting an unfair advantage in terms of pricing and tradability relative to people coming via a prospectus. So typically, if you get in at 10 cents, the exchange might say, well, half of your shares will be escrowed for a year. The other half you can trade um, to try and balance that out. Anyone who's involved with a company as an officer or an advisor, um, they will be escrowed for two years um, just, just because the stock exchange doesn't want people churning stock out and taking the money quickly and leaving the company um, to its own um, defences. So escrow is a method where they try and look after the investing public who actually take the highest risk coming in at the higher price. So um, it's a way to it's, – it's a blunt instrument to try and make subscribers at the IPO a little happier. Yeah, okay, cool. So that makes a bit of sense. So the cheaper they are, then the more likely there's going to be restrictions in terms of selling immediately by the sound of it. Yeah, that's, that's – as a general principle, that's fair. Yeah. And what about options? Um, I think you mentioned the cap structure stuff. Do you have a view or is there any comment on the, the option issues that often you sort of see in the fine print prospectuses as well? Well, often the brokers want an option because it's easier to – to sell, if especially in, in difficult times. In times like this where you don't need an option, the companies are best not to have an option because they detract from the trading and the headstock. The real punters will sell shares and keep options, and that doesn't do the general body of shareholders any good. It doesn't do the company any good. Options are, are useful as an inducement to get money over the line because there's a time value. If it's a two- or three-year option, the shares might be issued at 20 cents. When they come on, if the shares are still 20 cents, the options might be selling for three, four, or five cents because of the leverage they offer. Um, so it's an inducement, but um, they, options can actually create money out of thin air because of that time value. As they get closer to the expiry date, that uh, time premium um, evaporates, but if you're trying to get share price performance, you're always better only having one type of security being the fully paid shares 
So everyone has to play the shares and they don't have a choice playing with the options because um, it'll be a more focused market attention if you just have shares. And you said there in the with the IPOs, if there's options attached, sometimes that's an incentive for people to sell the headstock and just sort of free carry it. Are you noticing any difference in just general capital raisings, like whether that's placements or rights issues, in terms of the structures that those raises happened over the last 12 months or so? Yeah, they with the options, there's an increasing tendency to have them unlisted and exercisable at quite some premium to the placement price. If you have a look at uh, Cobalt Blue as an example, they recently did a placement. The shares were placed at $0.30. Cents. There was a one-for-two option that was going to be unlisted and it had a strike price of $0.45, cents, two-year life. Now, one of the reasons why they're unlisted is because if you're doing a placement, you don't get the spread. Uh, you need a spread of 50 uh, holders before you can have it quoted on the exchange. And if you do a placement and only 20 people take the placement, you don't have the spread. So that that's a practical reason. But um, I think I think that options, once they're issued by the company, they're of no benefit. The money may not come in. They may or may not get exercised. And they can detract from the headstock, as I said. So um, what I did with with First Graphene was when they had a, an entitlement issue, which is quite generous to shareholders, it, it had a, was a one-for-ten issue with a one-for-one option attached. And it didn't have to be attached to induce people to come in. But the board thought, well, that gives the shareholders um, an extra benefit. We're happy to do that for our shareholders not just do a placement, do an entitlement issue so everyone gets a crack at it and they get an option. But what we did, that price was at 15 cents. We had a three or four-year option. The first 12 months, it was exercisable at 15. The second 12 months, the exercise price ratcheted up to 20 cents. And then the final year, it's 25. Now, our logic in having multiple pricing was that it's a it's a better split between the company and the option holder of of the time premium it's not just a one off exercise that which which will as time progresses if the company's doing better you'd be looking for a rising share price you the, the logic is that the company gets some benefit as well as the option holder um, for the longer life there. And what we found with that is that each anniversary at which point the strike price ratcheted up five cents, we actually had a healthy number of, of option holders exercise early because they wanted that lower price. So when a company issues options, if it's a three-year life, at the same strike price through the whole three years, there's no incentive for anyone to exercise early. You get to the point where your shares might be trading at 25 cents. There's a lot of options out there and you get arbitrage happening. People will sell shares to exercise options. So it always creates a bit of pressure and overhang at 
the exercise time. If you've got the ratcheted price, then you get continual funding at each 12-month interval, depending on, you know, um, a lot of circumstances. But you you don't wait till the end for the big bag of cash. You get money along the way, and that's better for the, the company. Um, it's always a mistake for the company to budget to receive money from options exercise because the value, the stock market movements, all those aspects can have a big impact on whether they do get exercise or not. But interestingly, when we did that, we couldn't explain to the stock exchange, we couldn't tell them the way we thought because it was too novel for them and they would have seen that as a penalty. So how we had to express it was we, we'd say, well, they're a $0.25 cent option. That's it. That's the exercise price. But we're going to give a benefit to the option holders. If they exercise early, they get this price rather than the $0.25. Cents. And it's just it's, it's as simple as phrasing it in a, in a way that makes the stock exchange feel good. Same result. It's just the way you describe it. So it was an interesting exercise to go through. Not many people do things like that um, because often they find that dealing with the stock exchange, if you try to be creative or innovative, it doesn't really work very well. It's really interesting, Warwick, because, and those are the FGROCs just for any listeners, um, but one of the things I find, and, and certainly in, in dealings with retail investors, a lot of the times they don't quite understand the option or at least the tangible value. And like you just mentioned, they tend to come a lot of the time with a placement unless the company has issued a full prospectus. You mentioned about the lack of incentive for option holders to exercise early. Perhaps you can talk us through maybe the different situations when you would issue an unlisted option versus a listed option. Because for my mind, if you issue a listed option, you are basically incentivizing people to arbitrage and sell the heads and maybe keep their options versus an unlisted where you don't have any choice unless exercising. And having an option that is not tradable is reduces the value. You don't get any time value. If you've got a share that's, say, 20 cents, option life of three years, and a strike price of 20 cents, those options will sell for about five cents in the market. If you bought the options and you exercised it, the total price of a share would be 25 cents as opposed to buying the shares today on the market at 20 cents. But that's what you pay as a a time premium. If you think the share price is going to double from 20 cents and go to 40 cents, that's a 100% increase. But that option will go from $0.05 to a minimum of $0.20 and probably $0.25. So that's a 4% to 500% increase in your investment. So that's where options are very good for shareholders, for option holders. But if – so you either double your money on the shares – or you quadruple your money on the options. Well, I know what I'd take every day if if I had certainty. Uh, But the trouble is, if too many people buy options and not the shares, the shares aren't going to go from $0.20 to $0.40 because everyone's playing the options. You need someone 
or a group of people to drive the headstock price to make the option uh, price move. Now, um, so quite often I will have a mixture. I realise that I can't just be selfish and buy options and expect someone else to do the heavy lifting. So quite often I'll have both shares and options. Um, the strategy on um, there's trading strategies that you need to be aware of. Say if you want to sell out of something, you sell your options first and your shares later because the leverage on the upside that everyone chases can be um, just as punishing on the downside. So if you had, say, a million shares at 20 cents and by selling them at 19 or 20 cents um, or thereabouts, you drive the share price down to some extent and instead of your options being worth, say, 5 cents, they might go down to 3 cents um, the way the leverage works and, and the percentage losses are a lot greater. So, But there is room for um, improving your, your trading profits by playing both the options and the shares and uh, being smart about how you do it. That's really intriguing, Warwick. I guess where I was coming from is I find that um, a lot of uh, newer shareholders tend to buy listed options and not quite understand. So perhaps even just going back, if someone's listening to this for the first time, do you want to just explain in your opinion what, what the, when you are buying an option, what you're actually doing, buying a listed option, what, what it actually involves? Yeah, you've got to have a look at what the strike price is um, and the life of it. If it's only a six-month life, then it could be quick death. Um, you need the market to be moving the right direction in the immediate future because as you get closer to the expiry date, that time value compresses down to zero. If you, if you follow the theory, um, so that the, the best um, time to be selling options is when they're just issued, when they've got the longest remaining life and they attract the highest time premium. Um, if you just want to buy options, then quite often they'll look expensive. And if you try and say, well, all right, the option price is five cents. Um, the exercise price is twenty. So all up, I, I'm paying twenty-five cents, or I could buy the shares at twenty cents now. Um, it all depends on what you expect that share price to go to, and whether you're getting enough leverage. Um, so it's there's no perfect way. The, the Black and Charles method for valuing. Uh, options, you can throw that out the window because it doesn't work. Um, it's, it's a complete fallacy. You need to know when the headstock's going to move. You need to have an idea how much it's going to move. Work out what your percentage gain would be if it went from 20 cents to 40 cents, for example, 100% gain. If you're confident it was going to do that, then you buy the options at 5 cents all the time because you make four times as much money doing that. Um, that's it, it's a, a, a judgment you make on the run. Um, sometimes 
you know, the volumes aren't very high on the options and you might be paying a higher price just to get set uh, because they'll be far more volatile than uh, the headstock. Um, so um, just remember, if you are deciding to trade options, that if the market turns down or or the company goes through a rough patch, you can actually lose all your money, at least with shares. You know, they can be rebirthed to some extent. And just back to basics, I suppose, with the options, Warwick. So you talked about the strike price and the expiry, but when you're purchasing an option, you're basically you're gaining the, the option or the right to, to buy a price anytime before that expiry date for that strike price and you've got to pay you have to pay additional money to exercise that the, that's right the way they work practically you you pay someone a time premium when you buy them on market and if you want to turn them into a, a security you have to pay money up at some point you can pay it tomorrow or you can wait till they expire or uh, to the due date you wouldn't you wouldn't exercise them now, if there's a big time premium that you're paying because you're destroying value, uh, the value that comes out of the time opportunity. So um, the other thing to remember on a legal point of view is that the directors are responsible to shareholders, not option holders. The option holders are not stakeholders in the company. They've got a derivative, which an option is, and they've got a chance to lock in a price to get set at a later date should they so decide. You do get some people that have gone big in options and they think they're going to make a lot of money, but time runs out and they try and put pressure on the directors to extend the life of those options, um, to give them a, a second bite at the, charity, at the cherry. But that is contrary to... Um, you know, directors' duties and rights of shareholders. Um, that's giving preferential treatment to traders and people who actually aren't shareholders. So why should they get a preference? You've got to realise that if, you, if you're into options, you're into a high-risk strategy. And if you lose your money, well, no one's going to be looking out for you. Or just... Just touching up on that last point there um, about short-term capital movements in options, I mean, that, that, I can't help but think that's that's quite something that we would observe about this current market, um, you know, being sort of very short-term focused. Do you have any comments about it generally? The, the market hasn't the market hasn't been as short-term focused as other cycles I've seen, because there's been so much money made, um, the people who usually sell earlier are those who have suffered in the past when they've experienced downfall. So they, they see the wisdom in taking profits. <clears throat> One of the reasons why this market's gone a bit longer and stronger is because there are a lot of people that haven't been a victim of that. So um, just... With respect to your question, did I answer it or is there another aspect there? No, I think it's it's quite an interesting observation, Warwick. I guess I was just keen to sort of um, come back to something that you mentioned to me previously. It was about the market not being able to hold on to themes. Yeah, the, there's only one reason to buy a share ever, and that's because you think someone else is going to pay a higher price. 
if that's not going to happen, you shouldn't be there. Um, the market, um, you know, back in the old days when you used to pay 2.5% brokerage in the 70s, that's an expensive transaction cost, so you hung on longer. As it became deregulated, um, brokerage rates fell to compensate. Um, the velocity of trading increased because the transaction costs went down. So that, you know, that enables people to take profits on very short margins, especially day traders and things like that. Um, I think that it's always a, an issue you have to ask yourself. If, if you say if I see something at five cents, I think it's great, and I get set and it goes to six cents the next day, you have to ask yourself, do you take a 20% profit? Or do you think it's going to go to nine or ten cents and is it worth hanging on to? So you've always got a battle between those people who are happy to take small day profits because they might not have enough working capital and they've got to keep the money turning over, and people who can see real value and are prepared to sit there for six months or 12 months or two years. I think the market now is dominated by more of the, the, the short-term thinking traders. Um, and that that is influenced a lot by day-to-day psychology and volatility, and that creates opportunities for the, the longer-term people who are more patient. It, but it is a battlefield, um, and who's going to win? Um, it it liquidity. A lot of people look for liquidity events. You know, I've. Um, a lot of investors think that jo- the directors are there to pump the share price to bring out really bullish announcements that might make the shares go up ten or twenty percent, so they can trade out in a quick hurry. And that's extremely naive to think that that's the way the world should work. Um, the directors of a company are not there to make trading profits. They're there to build a business in the most case. You know, obviously there are some exceptions with um, with real highly speculative stocks. But, you know, the, a, rising, a rapidly rising share price doesn't necessarily help a company. It helps the shareholders who may, who may want to trade out. Um, the only way it helps the company is if they're able to get away of placement at a higher price. But that brings into to other issues. You know, do you get accused of pumping the share price so you can do a placement at a higher price? Then does that put a cap on the share price? You know, it's a, a conventional wisdom that if you see a, a share price go up from 40 cents to 60 cents and then they do a placement, but they do it at a discount of, say, do it at, at 50 cents, you're getting stock at 50 cents, which last traded at 60 cents. But it wasn't that long ago that it was only 40 cents. There's um, That's bad behaviour in in my opinion, when brokers or companies allow that sort of thing to happen because there's an element of manipulation of markets to get away a capital raising and it leaves a mess to sort out later because the, the bigger the discount on a placement, so everyone scrambles for it because, oh, wow, we're getting a 20% discount, it attracts the people who just want to do a quick trade out. It's not good for the company because it doesn't attract the sort of shareholders that will be loyal and and stick with you longer. It creates all a cacophony of 
of, of people bidding because they're desperate to get it. The more the, the book is, is strong, the more people that want it, the more people want it again, and it's just a very unpleasant exercise. Um, you, it, it, um, you know, you want to try and avoid situations like that because that's when uh, fear and greed really take over. This is really, really fascinating, Warwick, and I feel could go on very at length. But for me, what you said before about this being a battlefield, and you know, I mean, you might have your own set of goals, and you might have. You know, they, they say often as traders you're only really against, you're only competing against yourself. But if you look at the, the behaviour of the market more recently, it has become very short-term and you are essentially on that or in that battlefield with them. So going back to what you just said, how do you how do you strike the balance between, you know, finding that, that short-term, long-term behaviour if you have something on that? Well, I, I suppose it comes down to confidence levels. Are you just playing the market because it's been oversold or overbought? Or is there an underlying asset underneath? I was I was thinking just the other day about my particular situation, um, which is becoming rarer and rarer as time goes by. I've been doing this for 50 years. My contacts and relationships are such that um, most doors will be open to me after a, a long career of, of, of trust and responsibility. Anyone coming into the market now as a new player, what are their chances of picking up the phone and talking to a managing director and, and the managing director even taking the call? Um, it's a big risk for that person, the managing director, because who is this Joe Bloggs ringing up? Um, I Technically, he can't say anything that's not already publicly available. So what's the point in talking to him? Um, he doesn't know who you are. He doesn't know if you're a spy for ASIC or the ASX or someone like that. So he's going to be very cautious about what he talks about. So <clears throat> companies become, and new slow becomes much more insular because of all sorts of regulations now. Whereas I can speak to a lot of these guys, um, it helps that I have a newsletter that I, I release and they're always looking for publicity. It helps that I don't charge for my newsletter because I don't want to take people's money. <clears throat> There's too much compliance involved and I don't need to take their money. Um, I'm just happy to help. But um, the if you're a mature, experienced operator and you're known to be that, then a CEO will be more happy to talk generally, um, maybe technically, uh, technical information that would go over the heads of so many traders and they don't really care anyway because they're short-term thinkers. But you, you've got a, a market now where information flows and opinions are taken over by um, scurrilous websites like um, Hot Copper, where ASIC has decided it can't regulate it. It's too hard. But you get some horribly defamatory statements made um, on Hot Copper. And those sort of statements can move the market, but they're uninformed. They're not sanctioned. You know, I've just issued a, a letter yesterday to Hot Copper about a defamatory comment made about me. Normally, I, I don't read Hot Copper, um, but 
occasionally people pass on information to me. And what, what was said about me was just so bad that you're obliged to take legal action to, to remove the post and, and shut down that poster. But you can understand why a lot of people go to Hot Copper because where else do they get information from? The trouble is it's quite often not very good information. So all that's making it shorter-term thinking um, and harder for people to put into perspective what happens today within a three-month time frame, for example. So, um, so in terms of my own trading, very important. Um, I tend to be a loyal shareholder in, in most cases, and I prefer to be that. I prefer that management can trust me as a shareholder, that they have confidence that I'll be supporting them. But at times that can cost you a lot of money because you're dealing with companies, um, you're dealing with human beings. Um, they're not always consistent every day, every month, every year. And uh, by being a true believer, you run the risk that you can be misled and be taken down the garden path and you don't make as much money as the more aggressive traders. Um, so you, it, it's it's a... You know, sometimes you've got to be a bit bipolar and how are you going to behave with this stock, with this person on this day? So um, it's it's not easy. Fantastic. Just noting there your comment about, um, I guess, the short-termism of, of market participants and, what you know, prices going up and companies just being run by people. Is there anything you've seen in terms of company behaviour, like from a management or the company's point of view as these market cycles change? Obviously, Investors and market participants is one thing, but at the end of the day, companies are making decisions as well. And I was curious of any interesting observations in that. Oh, I think the management is spoilt by the, the ease in which you can raise capital now. I think for, for most of these CEOs and companies, it's, it's a very stressful time raising money. Um, brokers do it all the time. Running a company. Um, only one aspect of it is cap raising. They don't get a lot of experience. So um, you've we've seen some companies go to the market two or three times in 12 months, which is rather extraordinary. Um, but that's a, that's a symptom of availability of capital, and there's no harm in doing that as far as the company is concerned. But if I see a company going back to the market frequently, um, you start to wonder, is it just doing it because they can, because they want the money, or do they need the money? Um, and usually it's the case that the money's there. If they can build up a war chest, then, then, then they do it. And you can understand that because when the market goes into a recess, you might go for 12, 24 months where there's virtually a capital strike and you can't raise money. Um, I do notice with brokers... Um, the greed factor accelerates. The more money that's being made, you know, my way of thinking is you become more generous. I notice with brokers, they become greedier and they they want to retain more and more of the fee than previously because they don't need anyone else. They don't need subbies to, um, to contribute and help out because the market's so strong. So they cut out those subbies. Um, and then when markets turn down and get tougher, that's when they do need the subbies, so they pay up more to get deals across the line. So yeah, observations like that, but 
they're more comments on excesses you get at peaks and troughs of markets. Yeah, well, Warwick, that's really been fascinating, just your insights and experience in all this. Um, I guess we're kind of in the uncharted territory. Normally we would sort of ask you for a 10-bagger, but you've done that before. So uh, I'm going to throw this over to you. You can nominate a 10-bagger if you want, or if you want, you can just sort of maybe finish up with maybe just any sort of themes or expectations you have for the market, you know, over the next sort of three to six months or, or year, if you if you may. Yeah, well, when when people ask me questions like that, my mind tends to freeze up because um, there's so many moving parts. They say, you know, what are you like? And suddenly I, I go quiet because I, I don't really – I'm an optimist. I, I think there's always a potential for so many things to go up. I think, you know, one company which has actually disappointed me severely um, which has had three and now four issues in 18 months is, say, Lucapa. Um, I'm not happy with that one. I'm long and wrong. Uh, but I still think that that's got the potential to do extremely well. Um, but I'm very much talking my own book there. Um, so, you know, it's suppressed so low. You know, at the end of the day, one of the best ways to make sure you make money is you buy at the bottom. And it's so many other people, they come in, they buy when it's halfway up or halfway down or somewhere along the journey because they're looking around at what other people are doing and they want to be part of that movement. Um, say BMG Resources, um, that's fallen um, 66% from December to now. I went and bought some of those a few weeks back because everything looked good except the share price looked absolute crap. They were selling there. Um, no one wanted the stock. So I just took a view. Well, this could be worth a multiple of what it is. Um, end of year tax selling. They need to raise money so the buyers are standing back hoping they can get something in a placement. Um all the fundamentals, all the drilling, all the geology looked really good. So I just took a view um, that it should be bought now. Um, lo and behold, they're in a trading halt today doing a placement. Um, that'll take away one of the uncertainties. They'll have cash and be able to go on and do drilling, and if they get drill results like they had before, well, this could stock could be worth anything. So... Um, it's hard to get a 10-bagger um, because because you never really know at the outset, but you start from the principle, well, everything looks good. No one wants it. Um, you need an expanding information curve. You need news flow. And the more people that don't know about it, the more likely you're going to get a multiple of your money because when it starts to turn the right way, it'll suck in the buyers. That is brilliant, Warwick, because what you've just done is talk about what you started talking about at the beginning about looking for better value on a similar listed company. So with that note and uh, conscious of your time being very valuable, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and what a great way to finish up your commentary on the market. It's just been really appreciated by Joel and I. So thanks yeah, again. I'm happy to share my uh, years of experience with you, Sam and Joel. Indeed, thank you. Thank you. 
Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of the show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.